Hello, you are listening to CTO Cast. I'm your host, Sasha Stapenka from Amsterdam. Today, we are talking with Slava Akhmichet. Five years ago, we talked with him. Back then, he was a co-founder of EverythingDB database. I'll give you a link to that discussion, but you can enjoy it only if you speak Russian. Today, we're going to speak English, so stay with us, don't be afraid. After everything DB, Slava worked in Stripe for a few years, and now he's working on his new project, uh, the pro-social social network, which is called Alias. You can find the link also in show notes. We are going to talk a lot about the social network and overall how to make social networks more civil. If you would like to listen to some particular topic, please use timestamps in the description of this podcast. But I encourage you to listen to the whole episode to enjoy it fully. CTO Cast. Tech leaders share their stories. Hey guys, hey Slava, thank you for joining me on this episode of CTOcast. We talked with you like five years ago last time. How are you doing? Thanks for inviting me. I'm doing great. Five years, is, it's been a long time. Yeah, I think it's even a little bit more. While spreading the word about this uh, recording of this episode, I was introducing you as uh, ex-RethinkDB founder and ex-Stripe. Actually, it doesn't feel comprehensive. How would you introduce what are you doing today? Today, I just started a project working on a new social network. I think we're going to get to talk about that. But it's complicated. Like I don't have a particularly like normal bio, I just find problems I'm really interested in working on and end up working on them. And they're very diverse, like they're from different areas. So it doesn't look like a very particularly clear story. I think we can try to uncover it while we're going to talk a little bit more. As I already mentioned, we talked like five years ago. I just checked and it was on December 20th of 2015. And it's interesting that In about 10 months, in October 2016, uh, you decided to close uh, RethinkDB as a company. Of course, it's continued as a project uh, in open source, but you decided to close the company. And when we've been talking, I don't remember that, like any hints of that. So uh, for, for me, it was uh, pretty like surprise. What so drastically changed in the beginning of 2016 or, or maybe even already during our recording that made you close the company in just 10 months? I don't think it's not that anything drastically changed. It's just that in startups, you're always balancing, like you're on this line. And if you fall one way, like if you go a little left, you become super successful. And if you go, like make a step, everything fails. And you're always balancing between these two like opposing futures. So whenever you talk to people, you can't like, you can't be pessimistic and constantly say, oh yeah, we're doing this thing, but also we could fail at any time. But that was always there. So it's not that anything in particular changed at that time. It's just that like we basically ran out of money and there was no path, no good path to getting more. And at the time, like I mean, we knew that's likely to happen. It's just not something you necessarily advertise. That's interesting to not so many stories, how it happened, how, how it usually happens in details when you close the company. And RethinkDP, it's not like a regular IT company besides like regular dimensions, uh, like a team, development team, like VC who is investing 
testing like uh, customers and I know that you had quite few of them like IBM if I'm not mistaken like the big guys some genetic companies you also had a community like uh, guys who already invested their time efforts uh, and their intelligence uh, in, in the open source side of the project can you elaborate a little bit on each of these parties like team VC customers, community, how did you handle back then the, the communication about the closing of the company? And maybe which of these parties was the most difficult uh, to handle with? So I didn't handle that part well at all. I'll talk about how I didn't handle it, but it, it wasn't handled well. I think for me, this was like my first company. I started it when I was basically a kid and it was a pretty big like mental blow. So at the time, I just couldn't, I didn't have the experience or like mental wherewithal to handle it well. So it's in some sense, like everything happened pretty quickly. We realized, okay, there is like no path forward. We had to shut it down. In the meantime, we were doing the aqua hire with Stripe uh, and Stripe was amazing, just like shepherding everything through. And we also had to, to talk to investors, customers, community. And because everything wasn't like messaged on came as a surprise, Pretty much everyone was really mad at us, at me in particular. And probably if I were to rank it, investors were the most mad down community. And I could totally, I totally understand that. It's just like everything wasn't messaged. If I were to go back uh, and do it again, everyone always says, okay, you have to over-communicate. And I didn't realize the degree to which you have to over-communicate. You have to like say the same. You have to be very explicit and manage communication and information and say, say what you think is going to happen maybe 50 times before it really sinks in for people. And I didn't do that at all. And so basically, who took the biggest part of this communication in your team? Your partner? Yeah, I think my co-founder, Mike, did probably the lion's share of it. Okay. You, I, I remember that I was listening, I think in, in, in some podcast, I don't remember exactly where uh, you've been dis uh, describing the product. And also there was uh, a question about hiring people. And one of the reasons why people back then came to RethinkDB was because it was one of the most challenging technology uh, stack uh, on the market. And then all of you went to Stripe. So for market, it wasn't obvious why it was Stripe. Looking back, five years later do you think it was the right choice for the company to go to like yeah i think so stripe sort of on the outside it seems like a very different thing you know stripe's doing payments we were doing like just pure sort of infrastructure technology stripe is a big company or tiny etc etc which that's generally how acquisitions happen but if you zoom out a little bit what stripe does it, it's fundamentally a developer company that merges like developer culture and finance culture or banking culture i don't know how you want to put it money movement culture and what they do is they take something very complicated like the rails of these financial systems are immensely complex and they just make it as simple as possible to the point where, you know, if you're starting a website and you're one person, you can integrate in 10 minutes. I don't actually know how long it is, but it's a very short period of time and just start charging people. So what they're doing, uh, the reason why we, end, there were two reasons. The reason why we ended up at Stripe is because um, we felt that just like taking very, very complex systems and offering and presenting them with a simple API is something we were doing at RethinkDB and that's something Stripe does in a like obviously very different area, but like it fundamentally surprisingly similar problem. And the second reason is we just liked everybody there. 
Okay. And this uh, decision to go there uh, with the whole team, how important it was uh, for you and for uh, your partner to handle the team, to help the team to move somewhere after you close the company? So that was really important to me. I, I, I think, especially with startups, when you work with smart people, they could get a job in three seconds, but they stick with you. They're probably making less than they otherwise could be making. Like they're working longer hours. They really give their all. So At the time, I felt like it's incredibly important to make sure everyone gets a job. And actually, in hindsight, it was probably not that important because everyone would easily have gotten a job. But it's definitely at the time felt like a moral way. Yeah, we work really hard to make sure that happens. And in 2017, I think in the very beginning of 2017, there was one more event in the life of RethinkDB, Cloud Native Computing Foundation. They basically acquired my understanding IP of uh, RethinkDB. They changed the license. I think they open sourced part of the or the whole closed source code. And since then, I think there were no big changes in the RethinkDB. How would you describe current state of RethinkDB? Do you follow what's going on there? Maybe you contribute still a little? No. So I actually, once I realized that the company is shutting down, I separated myself from the project completely. So for example, the cloud foundation, it's cloud native foundation. Yeah, it's uh, CNCF. Yeah, so I see, I don't even know the name of the organization because uh, my co-founder, Mike, was doing all of that work. So he was, it, it was very important to him to make sure that the code base, sort of the community, everything lands in the right place. So he did an enormous amount of work to make that happen. I felt very differently about it. I felt I gave, and then I put all my energy for years into this thing and it, you know, it didn't work. It's, hey, that's okay. There will be other things. But I always, I kind of like, as I was working on Rethink for years and maybe even before that, I would look at people who, So in startup land, these companies are often called zombies, where it's not a breakout success, but it's not a complete failure. So people end up working on it for a very long time and never quite do anything important. And I didn't want to end up doing that. I thought, hey, you know, that didn't necessarily work. That's okay. There are tons of problems to solve in the world. I'll find another one. But I want to separate myself from that as much as possible. So I don't actually post company shutdown. I don't know anything about what's been happening with the project. My intuition was that it, it's super difficult to get a very complex piece of software like that um, to take off as an open source project. I, I didn't feel there was enough energy there. And in particular, you need energy from people with expertise. And that just wasn't there. So I think it's basically on life support, but I don't know. The last topic on our previous discussion, previous episode five years ago was importance of not being afraid to shut down your own products, businesses. And uh, you did, told- did we actually talk about that five years ago? Yeah, exactly. So you can release in the episode I did while I've been preparing for this episode. And it was <laughs> I amazing. I probably should have. I don't remember that conversation at all. Yeah. And uh, when I took this question, I was, oh, what a, what a wonderful bridge uh, Slava prepared for me <laughs> for the next episode. So you basically told back then that when you do, like when you're closing the business or doing, uh, closing the product, when you do it second time or uh, the third time and more, uh, it's becoming easier to move forward after each each case. Now, when you start working on your new story, which we're going to discuss in a second, alias, do you keep in mind that you may eventually close it 
And does this knowledge influence uh, in any way? How do you build this uh, product? And maybe it's not the most optimistic question, but I know that you are pre pretty realistic. No, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I definitely keep it in mind. I mean, we'll talk about this project in a second. The germination of this is very different from the germination of everything. It was an identity thing to me. It was very, as a kid, it was very important to start a company. It didn't even matter what the company was. It was like this romantic view of going to Silicon Valley, like doing the whole technology thing. The current project is very different. I have a very, very specific goal um, for why I'm starting it. I, I definitely keep in mind that it may not work out. That's okay. I'll find some other thing, but I'm about to balance between knowing that And at the same time, committing to it completely 100%. And surprisingly, I think I'm actually, it's really hard psychologically to pull off, but I'm actually, whether it affects my decisions, it does in certain ways. Like, for example, I don't want to raise money until I have more confidence that the project is likely to work. I'd rather spend my own money and work on it by myself. And it's especially, it's like really cheap to start software project, like you just pay $20 for a server or something, and it doesn't cost you anything other than that. So it affects my decisions in, a, in an administrative way like that, maybe a little bit strategically, but yeah, I'm all in on this thing. CTO cast. All right, now let's uh, move to b probably the most important topic for this episode, alias. Yeah, but let's start from what is the social network out there? which you would recommend to your friend to be active on, to register there? Is there any social network which you like now? So it's not a social network that I would recommend, but I would recommend everyone to switch to Signal from other chat apps. So Signal isn't a social network, it's a chat, but because of the absence of kind of a social network that fills this need, which we're going to talk about in a minute, everyone like all that energy seems to be going into signal right now and signal isn't like perfect for it it wasn't designed for it but a lot of that energy is there and the reason why is because they really care about your privacy they don't sell your information they don't try to sell you ads everything's end-to-end -end encrypted it's a i believe it's run by a nonprofit organization so just a lot of that energy is now on signal i think it's not perfect and, and you know we'll or It's not even good enough for the thing I want to do, and we'll talk about it in a minute. But if I were to recommend one, it would be that. All right. I would not ask why not Telegram or some other guys like that, but yeah. Actually, I have nothing against Telegram. I just happen to be on Signal. Like the way the social networks work is that you're on the thing that most people you know are on, and it happens to be Signal, but Telegram is probably fine. All right. And then why would a person in 2021 start developing new social network? That's an amazing story. So can you elaborate on that? This sort of the from many different angles. And I'll tell you why I'm starting it. From just a technology standpoint, these companies are probably about maybe 15 or they're getting around 15 years old to be around 15 years old. And 15 years is a long time in technology time. So this is, we're working with 15-year-old technology. But that's not why I'm starting it. It's not, it's not the primary or even a secondary motivation. My motivation is socio-political. And the reason, I guess to back up a little bit, you know, 2020 has been a very different year from the years before, partly because of the pandemic, because of the social justice movement, you know, social unrest, Donald Trump as president, all of these things. And I don't know where all the listeners are necessarily, but in America, the, the kind of cultural environment started shifting very rapidly. 
And the biggest change that I've noticed that sort of echoes back to the Soviet life is that I've noticed a lot of friends in Silicon Valley. And I know I've been here for a while, so I just happen to know a lot of people. They say a very, like the way they talk in public and the way they talk in private are, are two very different things. They'll say something in private and they'll say an exact opposite in public. And I always thought, I always thought that free speech is the sort of thing where they can't shut you up. But actually, free speech is even more, it, it's more fundamental than that. It's sometimes people are forced to say things that they don't believe. So I started noticing that almost everyone who's in any, who has anything to lose says something in private and says something very different in public. And I think it's a very bad and dangerous dynamic for societies in general. I find it's morally wrong. It's just from game theory standpoint, it's not a stable equilibrium. I think it's it can devolve into something very dangerous very quickly. So the reason I'm starting Alias is because I, I have one goal. I want people to be able to publicly say what they're really thinking without fear of losing everything. That's what Alias is about. And you can do that on Signal with a small group of people, but you can't signal it in public. You can't speak to the public that way. You also mentioned such... By the way, this was like my first pitch of Alias. So I don't know if I did a good job, but this is literally the first time I've ever spoken about it. It's interesting voice. that it's on record. And it's on record too. Cool. <laughs> so it's there forever. Yeah. By the way, today it's March 16, 2021, for those who are listening in the podcast. Yeah. You also uh, described Alias as a social network. What is that per social? And which mechanics... Do you think, just tell what you can. I understand that you cannot tell everything, but what you can, like which mechanics can promote this the civility in the conversations on the on this network? I don't want to get too deep into the product yet, but I can talk about what how existing social networks work. And so none of this is magic. If anyone here is a programmer, if you sit down and try to build your own like forum, social network, chat software, whatever, you start bumping into these decisions and you're like, I wonder, what should I do here? Let's see like what the state of the art is, what does Twitter and Facebook do? And you go look at what they do and you realize, man, like they are very good at optimizing certain things at all costs. That's the, all the decisions they've made. And they, you can look at what they care about as companies, but fundamentally it's all about engagement and getting people to look at the site uh, for as long as possible. And if you do that, it turns out that you can't really, you can't really do that like with positive emotions. It is much, or maybe you can, but it's much, much easier to do with negative emotions. So that's where the, the existing social networks tend to lean. And I think of them like, I think of them as essentially video games, like they literally have a score and you have to make that score go up. Years ago, we've been talking about people would say someday video games are going to enter real life and you're going to be unable to tell the difference, like where a video game ends and where life begins. And for a while, people thought it's going to be Pokemon Go. I don't know if you remember that, but everyone would go to parks or whatever to try to catch Pokemon. But Twitter is literally the video game that hundreds of millions of people are playing that bleeds into your real life. It has a score. It has certain dynamics. The dynamics are completely geared to having people spend as much time on it as possible because of the business model. And actually, before starting Alias, like I had this idea a couple of years ago, but I thought, man, I don't want to start a social network. Maybe someone will do this or someone will fix it, or maybe Twitter will fix it. But I think they just can't um, fundamentally because their business depends on this. So the pro-social network, to come back to your question, 
is basically, and you can still think of it as a video game, but I want a video game with incentives to make people happy rather than to get people to spend as much time on, on the product as possible. And in, in general, if you think of if you think of the search space of possible solutions to, to social networks, that search space is huge. We have five products. We haven't explored probably 99.9% of it. And if you think of video games, like you can think of video games with many different mechanics. It's okay, why does it have to be a Twitter mechanic? You know, why do you have to get likes when you say something controversial? Maybe don't do that. So you can do a lot of stuff with reputation. You can do a lot of stuff with visual design. You can do tons of, tons of things to make to make the users of the social network happy. And that's what I mean by pro-social. I basically want people to do two things. I want them to tell the truth, and I want them to be civil to each other. And that's it. You also mentioned the thing about the monetization and the business model. My understanding that it's a crucial thing, like which basically brings all evil, to, if I may say so, to exist in social networks. Without maybe telling details, will Alias have something different, drastically different from current monetization models available for social networks? And if, if you can uncover just a little bit what it's going to be, would be great. Yeah, so Elias is going to be completely different. It's not going to sell you ads. The general gist of it is that it has to do with crypto, the blockchain, distributed computing, things like that. And I actually want to build it out in such a way where I don't even have to raise money from like traditional Silicon Valley investors. Because when you raise money, like that's when that's when the, the sort of the clock starts and you start paying attention to the metrics that eventually when you get really big end up making people angry but i think for the first time in, in a long time we're starting to get technology where there are different ways um, to monetize these things different ways to build out these business models and i have no idea if this is going to work so i can actually tell you out of the three things that i'm ostensibly working on one is making it easy for people to tell the truth two is making them be civil and three a different business model I know for sure I can do the first one. Like I, I think pretty much solved the problem where people are unable to tell the truth because they're afraid of losing things. And we can talk a little bit more about how that works. The other two, I still don't know. We talked about how the stuff can fail and it very well might. But I think there is at least a, it's a pretty clear path that existing social networks haven't tried that I think we should definitely try. Uh, yes, uh, let's then elaborate, you know, uh, what what you can say, how you will manage to let people tell the truth without uh, being afraid to lose uh, something. And connected question to that one, will you have any mechanism to mitigate, how to say that, like fact-checking or something like that with all this post-truth story? So the first question, well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, let's talk about the problem rather than the solution. And maybe people can think about the problem and, and come up with their own solution. So it'd be great if people started more of these things. But so the fundamental problem is, if you're, let's say you're a famous person and you have a lot to lose. You hold a certain view that you don't feel comfortable sharing in public. If you share that view, Like you're screwed, you're going to get canceled, you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose a lot of your wealth, your reputation, et cetera, et cetera, like you're done. So that's what happens effectively on existing social networks like Twitter, where you use your real identity. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have something like Reddit, or maybe even further out, it's 4chan, where everything is completely pseudonymous. 
So there are two problems with complete pseudonymity. Number one is that there is no reputation or no clout to these things. I, I care quite a bit about what like Barack Obama has to say. I don't care at all about what some random person on the internet has to say. We read that stuff, but we don't pay nearly as much attention to it. So you can't have a full, you can't have a real identity and you can't also be completely pseudonymous. There has to be, there has to be a way out of those two things. So that's the fundamental problem. Like for the public to listen, you need some form of credibility to accrue to the user and for the user to speak, they can reveal their real identity. And I think I found a pretty pretty solid mechanic to solve that problem. What was your second question? I kind of got about, excited about talking about this. Fact-checking and understanding what is the truth there, if there is no real yeah, identity, so, especially. That's quite complicated. I don't have a good answer to that. I am, in general, extremely pessimistic about fact-checking. Like, just I have a natural gut reaction against it. And if you... Like if you look back in history, every time we had a new technology, people thought, okay, this is going to be dangerous. This is going to destroy the world. Like we should uh, restrict the use of this technology. And specifically, I don't mean like nuclear weapons and communication. Even when people invented the printed press, like the church tried to get it out of private hands. And, you know, it was just like this big thing. And people were concerned that it will destroy existing structures, institutions, etc. And to some degree, I mean, it did, but it took a very long time back then. But then the same thing happened with like TV, radio, telegraph, video cassettes. So every time there is this impulse to say, hey, we need fact-checking. We, we need to make sure not everyone has access to this technology. We need experts, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe to some degree that's true. Maybe now things are really different. Like this technology is so cheap and available to everyone. We have nation states gaming it that we should implement some kind of fact checking like it's plausible to me but i have such a negative gut reaction to that that if someone ends up doing that's probably not going to be me so as to as to what the fact checking is for i think the problem is real having these conspiracy theories spread etc cetera, etc cetera, i think the problem is difficult but my natural reaction so i don't have i don't have a solution i don't have anything like super insightful to say here but my natural impulse is that in, like in Dao de Jing, I, I forget the exact phrase but it's you don't pay attention to 10,000 things you like get one thing you get the the, the fundamentals and 10,000 things arise from that i think that's true about these systems too if you get the right mechanics if you get your reputation system to work correctly, I think you may not actually need fact-checking and the problem, I shouldn't, I wouldn't say is likely to go away, but, but might go away. And, and I'll give you an example. Twitter is fundamentally a democratic institution, right? It's literally just like however many likes you get, that's what gets elevated. And if you happen to believe some crazy conspiracy theory, that theory is going to get elevated. But you could build a social network on prestige rather than likes. And prestige is a different thing because you attribute it you attribute it to a person, not to a specific post or a specific thing a person says. What a person says can affect their prestige, but that's not where you accrue prestige. You don't accrue it in the post, you accrue it in the person. I think if you start with that and you start with thinking through a system where you think about how to get, you, you essentially make prestige the thing you want to get in the game. And then you think through how do you build the game in such a way that in order to increase prestige, you have to say useful things. You have to do useful pro-social things. You have to do things that are good for people. And I, I don't know the answer to that. Like, I think the general direction is, is promising. It's probably, 
a matter of many decisions rather than one decision. But I think like that's the direction I'm taking on this thing. And prestige, should it be something measurable and visible for other guys on the social network? I'm not talking directly about Alias now, but let's say in general, uh, for any new generation social network, should users be able to influence prestige as a parameter for other users? Arma, like something like that, or it's something yeah. what other users cannot do? Okay, so what I really want to do is break people out of just these existing systems where we have karma and it works a certain way and works basically the same way on almost all of these platforms. So I do think it has to be measurable. The reason it has to be measurable is because every game in existence has a score, even like chess or go or whatever, like really old games. In some cases it's discrete, in some cases it's like literally binary, you win or lose, but there is some objective metrics. I think that has to exist. I don't see why that would be different here. As to how particular users affected or whether they see it, I think there's a lot of space to, to play with these dynamics. There's a lot we can do. So for example, like in a lot of in a lot of video games, you have things like you reveal you reveal some you don't reveal all information at all times, like you reveal some information, you have to earn it, etc. etc. You can absolutely do this in social networks, right? Like maybe if you do something very positive for people, you get a right or a privilege to affect other people's prestige. Maybe if you do the right things, you get to see people's prestige. It like gets revealed to you. I think there's just like a ton of stuff to try, with, which we basically haven't tried. I don't know how it's going to end up, but I think people should start these things and should definitely play with the mechanics. Like I wish more video game designers started social networks. And losing the prestige isn't the same to some extent to losing something in real life. Of course, it's not the same, but I think over the time, people starting getting, they're getting binded to to their virtual alias <laughs> and they losing this, whatever you call it, like karma, prestige or something else, which, what you can potentially lose, they feel it the same way as they lose something in the real life with the cancellation uh, phenomenon. Yeah, I think even people who play like Grand Theft Auto or whatever and lose, like they get sometimes really mad. It's just fundamental human quality that when you care about something and you lose it, you you feel unhappy. And it's like that in real life, it I, maybe it should be like that in, in your digital life. If you do things that are good for people, respect you, they accrue prestige, they care about what you have to say. And if you're destructive and you do bad things, like you should lose your prestige. And do you have rights? That already happens. That's part of the human nature. The question yeah. is how it manifests given the dynamics, particular mechanics of the software that we use. I don't think you can get around human nature, but like how it manifests can be very different depending on the software. Definitely, we should not get around human nature. And do you have a right? People are trying, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a topic for the separate podcast, if it's even possible, yeah? For and, sure. Uh, with some examples from the history. Yeah. Does a person have a right to change uh, his or her opinion and to fix, let's say, fix in quotes, uh, prestige? And will uh, you uh, allow this, that in alias? Or maybe if person doesn't have such ability technically, then what they say becoming even more important for them and they are more careful what, what I say. What do you think? So we're getting into really sophisticated territory because there is thousands of years of human history and like jurisprudence where people have thought through these problems. So for example, should you be able to declare bankruptcy with real money and different jurisdictions decide that different? I don't particularly trust myself to make good decisions on this. 
So I think this is something as the network gets bigger, these are like pretty difficult questions to work out, but you have to have, there are some principles, right? Like one, you don't want it to turn dystopian. You don't want it to feel like a black mirror. So the thing we have now is if you literally make the wrong joke, you can get fired and potentially blacklisted for a long time. That seems pretty bad to me. I think people should be, people should have a little bit of a of latitude in their actions. Just because we're human, we all make mistakes. Sometimes a joke is a joke. Sometimes what you think a mistake, maybe it turns out not to be a mistake later. These things are really complicated. So I don't think it should end up like that. But the specific mechanics, in general, I'm lean. I wouldn't call myself politically like libertarian. But I lean libertarian. So I think I think people, to the degree that it's possible, people should be able to make their own decisions about this kind of stuff. And that's partially where the distributed nature of the thing comes in. You can have different communities that make different decisions with respect to these issues. There is no reason why there has to be like these social networks are like global structures. You get billions of people on these things. And I don't see a reason why a billion people have to follow the same cultural standard maybe it will turn out that way eventually in the future and all of humanity follows like the same cultural standard i don't know that would be good for us but i don't see why that i think we should try something different like maybe there should be different communities on alias with different standards as to how this works and the only rule i think like what libertarians would say is that the only rule is that you get to leave if you don't like to be in a particular community or they don't want you they, they can kick you out and you're free to leave you can join another community if they want you but i don't necessarily think it should be like this global thing where you make one mistake and and you're shunned for the rest of your life by all humanity that seems bad agree with you and about the consumer side content consumer side will you have any particular special ranking content ranking system and which of existing i don't know social media sites social networks you consider as a, the best example of how content ranking system is organized what uh, by content ranking i mean ranking particular posts as opposed to people Yeah, yeah. In uh, Hacker News, for example, it's uh, one yeah. way how you promote content, uh, which is on the top, which you like push to uh, to users to read. And in Twitter, it's a completely different way, or Facebook, it's a different way, right? Yeah, so I think if you start working on this problem and you look at Twitter, you realize they're insanely good at this. Like the system that they've set up, every little detail is thought through, every pixel every number it's done for very deliberate reasons and they're very good at what they do. So in terms of, I wouldn't say I, I want the same system because to some degree I'm building something for, for a different reason, but I think they've done a very good job and they're worth studying. So if you look at Hacker News, for example, the Hacker News Karma system is just not nearly as sophisticated as Twitter by light years, actually. And and that's no, no shade on Hacker News. It's like Hacker News is phenomenal. And it definitely hooked me for a while on earning the karma. But Twitter is just like out of this world, next level, go to this stuff. I'm less of a Facebook user, so I don't have a particularly strong opinion on, on how Facebook does it. Whether to have specific like karma for content rather than in person, I don't have a specific answer I can share yet, but to just back up a little bit. What you want to do is you want to balance long-term goals, which is people telling the truth and being being good to each other, being civil to each other, with the actual problem of engagement. Because if you build a network where 
that encourages people to be to be civil and to tell the truth, that's not necessarily an engaging product. Like people can look at it and be like, oh man, I don't want to tell the truth and I don't want to be nice to people. This is boring and I'm never going to use this. So you have to balance the long-term pro-social goals with the reality of people keeping people engaged. And I think like the reality of people keeping people engaged, the low-level tactics of how that gets done, that's just purely video game stuff. You know, you have to video game designers are really good at making video games engaging. And I think however it turns out to be just taking that, borrowing the, those patterns, I'm totally happy to do that so long as they serve the the bigger purpose. I think we'll get back to features of the social network uh, a little bit later when guys from audience, they may have some questions uh, and we will allow questions. Uh, yeah, I also... Yeah. Yeah, just to interrupt. So I'm being vague on features for two reasons. One is the stuff I worked out. I'm still testing. And as it gets released and gets into the hands of people, there will be more tests. And to some degree, like sharing this stuff makes tests less valid. So I want to wait and see how people experience it. And the other reason is that it's really early and I don't have a lot of the answers yet. So the only thing I can do is talk through like how I think about it philosophically, but I don't yet have the specifics simply because they're just not worked out. Yeah, I, actually what I meant by features, it's more not like exact features in the uh, social network, but maybe uh, your vision on... Uh, oh, I see, like... Um, yeah. Uh, and of course, yeah, guys, uh, since it's uh, actually the first, if you miss the beginning of the podcast, it's the first speech uh, which Slava they're doing publicly about Alias social network. We do not definitely expect that Slava will unveil any details on the features because it's still work in progress. It's not even in early alpha, I believe, very few early, early users currently on the network. Meanwhile, I just wanted to talk a little bit about like how you building this thing. And I have a feeling reading your Substack, Zero Credibility, that it's a story in itself or how you're approaching things. And from technology perspective, from a uh, uh, process perspective, you're building it uh, yourself or you're alone there. And the first question is, some time ago you wrote in the in your Substack that you've been, you worked in the flow, you've been in this flow mode uh, since you started working on the alias and you said that you didn't feel that actually for years so i'm wondering what fueled that what triggered that yeah just to correct the fact for a second i just started working with another person who's really bright so we're working on it together so it's two people now Oh, great. But it's a team, back officially. The, yeah, yeah. But to get back to the process, it, it's interesting because after everything you be in and working at Stripe, and Stripe is Stripe is an amazing company for a lot of different reasons. And given its size, it's probably the best employer in the world for companies of that size. But it's still a big company, and I'm not particularly a person who necessarily fits in well into these big structures. Yeah, after that, I was just like, didn't want to touch a computer for a long time. And I was legitimately scared because it's like my livelihood and I just couldn't get myself to program. And I'm like, man, maybe I'll never be able to program again. Like just every time I'd open an idea, I'd get extremely bored or like my attention would wander or I'd get a little bit done and then just stop and lose interest. So that went on for years and it was actually scary. People say it's burnout, but burnout is, is if you look at it from outside it, it's a correct label but internally it can feel very scary and i don't know what changed i think just having the motivation to build this thing maybe because like i look at the world and i think there's something that's wrong and no one seems to be fixing it and i think it's really important to fix it uh, is what get, gave me the 
feel. And it feels very different. It's not like I think of these grand motivations every day. It's more that somehow it just makes me excited to write code and test features and work with users and do all of these things that you have to do to build a product. I'm just having an enormous amount of fun. As to how I'm building it, I don't know. It's a really broad question. Do you, is there anything in particular you have in mind about the process? Yeah, for, for months or about so, maybe even more, you've been working only on, let's say, infrastructure things on core of the system, as well as, I don't know, like basic communication functionality, mobile apps, CICD. So basically general stuff, maybe not the most exciting sometimes. And since it takes quite some efforts and time, Aren't you losing and weren't you losing the spirit and the drive of initial idea, which made you basically start all of that? So I started Elias literally two months ago. I think maybe even less than two months. So it hasn't been very long. And I've built, I believe maybe this is the third prototype that I'm working on now. So I've built two prototypes and got users on them and, and threw them away. So this is going actually pretty fast. The stuff I tweeted about and wrote about, it's like just literally as I was building this out and I was running into problems, I would just tweet about it or ask people or whatever. And remember, this is actually quite an interesting experiment because I came back to programming after years of not doing it. So a lot of these tools and, and systems were new to me. And I was like discovering them for the first time. The way I'm approaching it is I feel like some tools today are really good. They're just like out of this world good. For example, TypeScript is amazing. I was shocked at how good it is. Some tools, I'm shocked at how bad they are. So for example, native development, you would imagine given how many phones are out there and how many people are building the apps, you'd imagine the experience would be good. It's actually horrendous, like developing on a native app. So React Native improved it dramatically, but it's still pretty bad relative to just like building websites. Then there is infrastructure like all the web server and middleware stuff where people built in enormous amount of complexity. Like a lot of this gets built by large organizations and gets open sourced. And then you get developers there's like two guys in a room using that stuff and it's way overkill. So I don't usually like to follow necessarily patterns like agile or picking particular frameworks. Like I see like functions are the building block of programming. So I see a problem, I write a function to solve and that has served me pretty well. You briefly touched now some technologies which you used. Can you give it like just a quick overview, starting from the front end, from mobile apps, from TypeScript and all the way down what you used and maybe in a couple of comments why you chose this and that? So initially, I just chose. I, so I'm prioritizing development speed basically at all costs. Um, I think development speed is the most important thing. If you get that right, everything else is way more likely to succeed. And if you get that wrong, you're screwed, and it doesn't matter what you do. So I've always made these choices with development speed in mind. So I chose to make it mobile first. The reason is just there's billions of phones in people's pockets, and I wanted this to be in people's pockets. I started using Firebase because it was the quickest way um, of building a mobile app. I started using React Native because I already knew React a little bit, and it was easier than learning all the native stuff. I moved away from Firebase because I very quickly started running into limitations. Was there security rules, cloud functions, like all of the cloud stuff? makes you very fast and good at like enterprise scale. But if you're just building something simple, you don't need any of that. And it's much, much easier to write code in your computer, deploy it on something very simple. So I have a TypeScript-based backend. It connects to Postgres 
through Prisma, which is this ORM in JavaScript and TypeScript. I deploy the whole thing to render. And that's basically it. There's a lot of libraries I use, like Tailwind is notably really good at making it fast. My own communication layer between the client and the server, because like an RPC layer, just because it was the easiest thing to do relative to using existing tools. I think that's pretty much it. So what is the current uh, database of choice for yourself? And I've seen in Twitter that you've been trying Neptune from AWS. So I'm using Postgres as the primary database. I also have some graph problems that need to get solved. And I haven't actually used Neptune yet, so I don't know. I don't know whether that's going to work out, how good it's going to be, if I'm going to end up using it. But it seems like a good solution to these graph problems. So I'm probably going to try it out this week. Okay. But yeah, the primary database right now is Postgres. It's just not very good at graph queries. All right, all right. I have one more question about the technological stack for Alias. But before I will ask it, guys, if you have any questions, please raise your hands in the audience. I will let you on the stage and you will have a chance to ask them. Meanwhile, I also seen seen some thoughts on decentralized technologies and that they are pretty important now for modern generation of social networks. And we've seen some examples in the last couple of years that guys who are building social networks have been actively using them. What do you think about that? And I think I know the answer, but why you didn't start using them from very beginning? And do you plan to use any decentralized technologies for Alias? Yeah, so I think all of this software going forward has to be decentralized. And we've seen this from a political perspective where you had Silicon Valley companies, the most important ones like Facebook, Twitter, Cloudflare, AWS, et cetera, et cetera, just kick off and deplatform people. And I think this time they kicked off Donald Trump. And regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, or maybe you're like not in the US and don't care at all, and you think it was the right decision, it very well might have been. But I just don't trust a small cabal of corporations to have that kind of power. I think that's they can turn that power onto you at any time. They can turn it onto people you support. And I think that's just fundamentally really dangerous. I, I believe in decentralized technology. I think it's extremely important. The reason why I didn't start with it is because like products are still products. Being decentralized in and of itself is not enough. The product has to be good. And the centralized tech is it's still fairly early on. It's nowhere near as mature and good and, and battle tested and polished as other tools and services that we have. So because I wanted to prioritize development speed just to make a good product, what I decided to do is start completely centralized, move fast, build a good product. And then as the product gets good and, and gains more and more users, start chopping off pieces of it and moving it into distributed infrastructure. So I absolutely plan to do that. I'm going to do that. But it's just I spent some time working on Ethereum and, and playing with it. And it's surprisingly mature relative to what I thought it is, but it's nowhere near as good, or rather, I shouldn't say good. It's nowhere near as mature as, as other tools we have. And with things like Ethereum, all the properties are very different. The costs of operations are very different. So there is a lot there to work out. And I think it's just not the right thing to do at the very beginning when you effectively have no product and you're trying to build a product that's good. So that's why I didn't start with that. But yeah, I think this has to be decentralized both from infrastructure perspective, so no one can turn it off, and from financial perspective where you need a business model that, that doesn't give you the wrong incentives. 
Slava, are you ready to now to elaborate a little bit on what exactly decentralized technologies you are thinking about or on the market? If not, we can move forward, but maybe you already mentioned Ethereum, but maybe something else. So I actually don't know all that much about it in detail. I'm new to the, to the to blockchains, but yeah, I'm thinking of just in general, the shape of it is, is crypto blockchain space. I think it's the best we've got right now to to build decentralized tech. A lot of people think of it just in terms of moving money around. And right now, that's mostly, I think, what you can do with it. But fundamentally, you can do a lot more with crypto, right? You can you can incentivize people to sell you storage, and people are trying to do that. You can incentivize people to sell you compute. Like, you could build an internet computer, and a lot of um, people in the crypto space are, are doing that or trying to do that. And I don't yet know the degree to which they've succeeded. I think it's going to take some time before this stuff gets really good. So it's not necessarily going to be ethereum it might be something built on top of ethereum it might be something that doesn't necessarily exist yet but i think eventually what we're going to get is an internet internet computer where you can run services on it and no one can turn them off and as an example for programmers in the room if you haven't played with ethereum you can literally do this in in a weekend or in half a day even just write a program um, deploy it on the blockchain it's going to cost you if it's a really simple program, it's going to cost you like 20 bucks. And um, just getting the feel for it is is extremely powerful because sometimes you don't really understand something until you play with it and viscerally experience it, like you can't describe it. So I remember Python being like that. Like the first time I tried Python, it just absolutely blew my mind. I'm like, man, that's you can't describe that to someone who's been working in like C++ for years. And I think Ethereum is or blockchain networks are, are the same way. Like you have to deploy a program to get a sense for what's possible. And it's man in 10, 5, 10 years, this is really going to take over the world. It already is from a money perspective, but I think it's going to do a lot more for us. CTO Cast. A few years ago, I had in CTO Cast podcast uh, a guy from BitTorrent, uh, Lisonov. And also, as far as I know, you're also pretty interested in what uh, BitTorrent technology is doing and also thinking about what application of that technology can be possible for Elias. Yeah, so I'm not. So a lot of people in the blockchain space, like they, they particularly they're bought into the blockchain, bought into crypto. They really care about it. I'm looking at it from the outside. I don't actually know all that much about the details of it. Like I read the Bitcoin paper. I played with Ethereum. I talked to people, but that's probably the extent of what I know. So from my perspective, I'm really looking for protocols, software, systems, whatever that you could build your product on and it will provide you with a sustainable business model so you don't have to sell ads to people. And it will allow you to build your software in such a way that you cannot, no one can turn it off. Like Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg can get together and decide we don't like this. We're just going to shut this down. Whether that turns out to be like crypto or BitTorrent or something that doesn't exist yet or something really simple, just like a simple protocol, on top of email or something, I don't know. And it doesn't matter that much to me, so long as the system is decentralized. What is the best way for people who are interested after listening to this podcast about the alias to get on board or to read about that? What would you suggest? So there is not much on it yet. You could go to joinalias.com and just sign up with your email. And I'm going to send you an email when the first version is out that people could could sign up for. You could probably go 
just find me on Twitter. And my last name is kind of complicated. And actually, my Twitter sure. and my uh, handle is complicated, but it's S-P-A-K-H-M. And you can talk to me. I'll tell you all about it. But I haven't written very much on it yet or really advertised. I will anyway. put these links uh, in the show notes of this podcast. So you will be able to find them there. And I just added more on the stage. Uh, more if you have a question or comment, please uh, go ahead. Hi, guys. Slava, could you mention more about the business model and how that's going to be different? Because whatever plans you've got now, if your incentives are, are screwed up in the future, won't really make any difference. So you, you said you thought about the uh, business model and, and how that's going to align your incentives. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I mentioned briefly at the beginning that it's possible I don't even want to raise money from traditional investors. Uh, but I think there is a lot you can do in the crypto space. Like you can build a blockchain specifically for the network. And if the network gets users and the blockchain gets more valuable, people get paid out. Um, you can do things. So lately, I think in the past, like really just a week or two, NFTs got really popular and there's an insane amount of money floating into that space. So, I mean, what that lets you do is that lets you sell digital, effectively digital goods uh, with authenticity as, uh, attached to them. And there is a secondary market for it, so you can resell it. And because Alias is fundamentally a game, and in games you can make valuable digital objects or digital assets, you can sell them that way. So I don't actually, I'm being vague partially because I'm still working a lot of the stuff out and partially because I don't know necessarily how this is going to work out and where it's going to go. But I think there's at least at least a viable path in crypto to build a project in a, in a system where the incentives are going to be completely different. I'm going to, I'm spending some time just like a completely focused on getting the product out, but I'm going to go deep, deep on this maybe for a couple of weeks when I get a little bit of a break and, and talk to a bunch of people about it. And maybe I'll be able to be more specific then. But yeah, it's like fundamentally, I, I care about it a lot. This is one of the most important aspects of it and if that doesn't work out then nothing works out i agree with you no thanks that's awesome another quick question is is this going to need a lot of ongoing engineering work so that you'll have to have a, if it succeeds you have to have hundreds of engineers which itself becomes like a almost a target of attack because you have to move to san francisco you have to move to a place that has thousands of engineers and behave a certain way or just something that's going to need dozens of yeah everything is on the internet now Everything is on the internet now, so it doesn't necessarily have to be in a particular geographic place. I think if it gets successful, you can't, you know, there's been examples of really successful social networks like Instagram and WhatsApp that's been built. Sorry, not, yeah, Instagram and WhatsApp, that's right, that's been built with very small teams. But I think if you get the scale, it would probably be difficult to stay small. I don't know for sure. Maybe blockchains make the difference, but its current state of development, I doubt it. I think you need big teams. And I agree that then building out the organization and governance and all of that becomes important and it becomes an angle, like a vector of attack. But I think another thing crypto gets you is it gets you a new ability to organize people and align incentives. Uh, with people, users, with, with your employees or, or people who are working on it. I don't even know if you call them necessarily employees. Your users, your investors, and it could be all the same people, the same person. They're just different hats. So a lot of that remains to be worked. But I'm hopeful 
the, I'm hopeful that it's possible, but I, I agree with you. It's absolutely new ground. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'm going to try. CTO cast. I just want to connect that with uh, your post in the uh, Zero Credibility, which is called How to Get Promoted. So if you would like to choose any post from Zero Credibility, I think that should be the post, right? Because <laughs> it's amazing. I was laughing, I was crying when I was reading that. But now, when indeed Alias will start growing, how would you avoid to become the company where all your suggestions, in quotes, how to get promoted will work in Alias. How you would avoid that? So I think, <laughs> unfortunately, the, the thrust of that post is that's unavoidable. When you create incentives for people are going to gain those incentives and you can tweak incentives in various ways and people are still going to gain them. It's just going to manifest differently. Now, that doesn't mean that all incentives are the same. Some incentives are much, much better and game-proof than others. Some incentives you do game, but the gaming of them sometimes is the property that you actually want, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think it's avoidable. I think it's something you have to build around. I don't have experience running large organizations, so I don't know what good incentives necessarily look like. I have some ideas. I'm pretty sure they're very naive and they're actually not going to work in real life. So there is a lot I have to learn uh, and read up on before I can answer this question. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's avoidable. I think when you're organizing a large group of people, you get emergent behavior like this. And I, anyone who's worked in a large organization knows that there is no large organization where, where that doesn't exist. And if anyone knows of one, please let me Probably know. Probably won't be able to... I don't think you, you cannot can avoid, avoid it, but I think to some extent you can minimize it. To some extent you can minimize it. So like, for example, the things I believe, which are super naive, but I, I believe in individualism rather than collectivism. So I believe that there should be a single person responsible for any given decision. Now, people talk about that a lot and you, you, get, you hear about that a lot. You hear from nearly everyone that people don't like committees, that there is diffusion of responsibilities in committees. So no one likes them, but yet committees arise. And the question is why? And I don't actually know the answer to that. I don't have a good answer. So there's a lot to learn. There was one more piece of content which you uh, wrote, I think six, maybe even more years ago, which is called 44 uh, Guiding Principles of Engineering Management. And the question is, did you change your view, your opinion on any of them throughout these years? And maybe you can give even an example, a couple of examples, if you changed. I actually haven't. And it's interesting, I sometimes read that post just because every once in a while, someone emails me or DMs me and says, hey, I read that, that really helped me out. I'm sharing it with a lot of my colleegues, that this really improved being a manager easier and improved my career. And I was like, wow, really? I gotta go reread that because I don't remember much of what I said there. And actually, I think that's the, a lot of my posts, I think were pretty silly in hindsight. But this one actually stood the test of time. I think I think it's still quite good. And there isn't anything there that I look at and think, man, that was just wrong. The, those 44 lessons were pretty hard one. They went through a crucible. Yeah, those are still good. There are lots of other posts that I wouldn't recommend people read. They were just silly. Uh, actually, you write a lot. And I was very surprised when I read, uh, I don't know, like a week or a couple of weeks ago, the post on the Substack that uh, don't, don't pay me or something like that. So where you basically confessed that actually you doesn't... Uh, 
like writing, which is incredible for a person who was writing every week a very good piece of content starting from the September and before that and your Twitter. So what was the biggest driver for you to write if you don't like it? So writing is very painful for me. And usually writing is a form of therapy. So if I'm struggling through a problem, it just doesn't go away. And interestingly, people say, write in a journal, write for yourself. That doesn't work for me. If I write for myself, the problem doesn't go away. But if I write and publish it and people read it and I engage with an audience, somehow that just makes the problem go away and I don't think about it again. So writing is a form of therapy. Now, the problem is that Putting all that stuff down on paper and making it good is actually a very painful process, which is why I don't write that much. Like the, the best pieces of writing came from that like very real place of, I wouldn't say pain necessarily, but like harsh experience, like the how to get promoted post. I saw all, all that in real life. I made it like a comedy, but it's most of it is true. But taking, I think writing in general It's just very difficult because that's not how people think. People think they acquire knowledge in layers. It's networked. You think of multiple things at once. You build up this graph of knowledge. And then what you have to do is take all that and project it into fundamentally a linear medium. And maybe it's easy for other people. It's like super hard for me because anytime I want to write a sentence, I'm like, man, is that the right sentence to put here? Is there is that the most important thing or the most interesting thing? Is there something else? It's a very slow, laborious process. And I found that when I take money from people for it and I have to deliver every week, it just made me really unhappy. So I stopped. And there is no compiler who will tell you if this uh, sentence or another works or not. You don't know that. You just threw it there. <laughs> Yeah, we have linters, but they're not very good. CTO cast. Logical question after writing is basically reading. Approaching the end of this podcast, I, I, I just wanted to elaborate a little bit about your concept of reading in clusters. I loved it. And I actually, I, I was doing that unintentionally. Yeah, so the people haven't read about it. Uh, the idea is you think of the knowledge you acquire through books as this lab. And I actually visualize it. Like I imagine a room. In this room, there are tables. And on the tables, there are instruments. And the way you construct those instruments is you construct them from books. You have a problem in life you need to solve or in your career or whatever. Someone probably wrote about it. And you need an instrument for that specific problem. It's, it's quite narrow. Now, the thing is, people usually read one book and then they give up. And I think one book is not enough to really build sufficient foundation for you to get a sense To, to build a good instrument, let's say. So what I do is I read in clusters of five, and I usually find a very specific problem I want to solve. And it doesn't have to be like a career problem. It could be a personal problem, and the books could be great novels or whatever. And then I'll read five books to try and solve that problem. And I just do that. Um, I've been doing that for years, and it's worked really well for me. I think I started because I wanted to learn some history, And history is the kind of thing where if you read one book on a topic, you don't really get, you get a lot out of it, but it's not durable. You don't get a lot of it long-term. But if you read five books in a particular time period, you're going to know quite a bit of that time period. And I thought maybe I could apply that to something else. And I've just been doing that ever since. 
Guys, just take it uh, as an advice, uh, free advice from Slava. Really beautiful concept. Mo, you're again on the stage. Uh, please go ahead with your question. Quick question. Do you know of any other people or companies that are trying to solve similar problems to yourself? Yes. So I know a lot of people who are working in the decentralization space. Many of them are working openly. Many are working behind the scenes. A lot of people who are working on the stuff in America, at least it's a politically sensitive area. So they want to stay behind the scenes, at least for now. And I don't want to mention names of people. You know, maybe we can talk about this in private. But yes, there are a lot of people who are concerned about just the issues of speech. There are a lot of people who are concerned about centralization of power in the hands of very few people. So they may not be necessarily working on this exact problem of allowing people to tell the truth or having people be civil. They may be working on something totally different. They may have a different angle on it. But yeah, there is there there is an entire, it's not an industry yet. Maybe it is an industry, and, and but there's a, a huge movement of people, very smart people, dedicating time and energy and intellect to this stuff. And that's something that makes me very hopeful. Thank you, Slava. Uh, yeah, Mo, you wanted to say anything else? Yeah, I was wondering if you'd read a book called Private Truths and Public Lies, because it seems like it's along a similar line of thought. I've heard so much about that book. I haven't read it yet. I think you're like, you're one more person to add to, to that book. So, so I should read it. Of course, I'd have to find another four on the same topic. But yeah, I should read it. I've, I've heard about it so much. I haven't read yes, it. Slava, you're now in the cluster of biographies, right? So that was Steve Jobs. Yeah, so I had to switch because of what I'm working on now. So now I'm actually in the cluster of gaming. But I did, so I finished my tech cluster. I didn't get to my historical tech cluster and I switched to gaming instead. So I'm reading books and designing. Can you unveil a couple titles uh, which uh, are in your cluster? And I think we're approaching the end of the recording in the end of this room so a couple books uh, which you can suggest yep. yeah so the book i'm reading right now is called reality is broken it's a book about how too many people games feel like more interesting than reality and how reality can potentially how games can potentially help us build um, a better world so that's what i'm on now i recently read let's see The Psychology of Video Games by Celia Hoden. That book is good. There's another one. I'm unfortunately blanking on the name and the author. Okay, so it's a book called The Book of Lenses. And it's I think it's like a hundred different ways, a hundred different ways to look at video games and a hundred different ways, like patterns to try to build good games. I forget the author, but the book is also quite good. All right. Thank you very much, Slava. It's officially end of the podcast. I'm stopping, I'm stopping recording. Did you enjoy the experience? Yeah, I loved it. Thanks for inviting me. This was really fun. Thank you, Slava. Thank you, guys. Have a good night. And those who just got up, uh, have a good, good uh, day. CTO Cast. If you like this episode, please leave a review at the platform where you're listening.